So this past week, we entered into uh, a period that traditionally in the church is known as Lent. Um, we don't usually talk about it too much in Church of Christ often, um, but it's something that's just kind of interesting, and I thought I'd talk about it for a second. Um, the idea is that in the 40 days leading up to Easter, um, many Christians will use this period to give something up so that they can be closer to Jesus and focus on Jesus. Um, and it's kind of emulating Jesus when he was in the desert for 40 days fasting. And so the idea is to help bring you closer to God uh, and to help you to begin to focus on the life and death of Jesus uh, in the weeks leading to Easter. Um, so I was kind of surprised last week to see that that was when Lent began because I didn't realize we were that close to Easter. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's just in six weeks. Uh, so what I kind of want to do, uh, as, as we get closer to the Easter season, I want to begin to focus on Jesus, but in a different way. Uh, I want to spend six weeks looking at prophecies through the Old Testament uh, that look towards the coming of a Messiah, and that look towards Jesus' coming to earth, and what he was going to do, and what he was going to suffer, uh, and... and I just kind of want to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who were, who were there um, when these prophecies were written um, and, and that looked forward to the prophecy of a Messiah. People who hadn't yet seen Jesus come, but who were expecting him. Because um, I think sometimes we, we can take Jesus for granted. And what I mean by that is that for our whole lives, we've had the option of choosing Jesus. He's always been there available to us. Um, but we've never experienced a world in which a Messiah had not yet come. Uh, when, when you had to put your hope in sacrifices and keeping the law and hope that you were a good enough person. So I'm hoping that looking at these prophecies will kind of help us to um, imagine and feel that deep sense of longing that the people during those days had. Uh, the excitement of a Messiah long awaited and finally come to save us all. And as we begin to move closer to uh, the arrival of Jesus, uh, through these prophecies, it will hopefully be encouraging to also see the seasons changing out the window uh, as we get closer to that, bringing the hope and promise of spring. Again, Easter's a little early this year, but uh, so there'll likely still be some snow, but uh, that's one of the things I look forward to with Easter as well. So we're going to start this, um, this journey with the very first prophecy of Jesus in Scripture, uh, which, believe it or not, is in the third chapter of Genesis. So from the very beginning, from the moment that humanity fell, we will see that God has had a plan to restore all creation to himself. But to understand why we need a Savior, um, it's also important to look back at that moment. For that reason, to understand and see the moment that humanity first fell to sin. So I know that we've all heard this story, but we're going to kind of revisit it um, and, and reread it and learn it again. Uh, I'll summarize the first part. So Adam and Eve were living in paradise uh, in the Garden of Eden, and then Satan came in the form of a serpent, a snake, and deceived Eve into believing that if they ate fruit from the forbidden tree of knowledge, that they could be like God and know the difference between good and evil, but he lied and said that they would not die as a result. 
So she ate it and took the fruit to Adam, and he ate it. Um, and because of that, they did know the difference between good and evil, but it became their downfall. Um, because of that, they did eventually die. And that brings us to the section of Scripture we're going to be in today, uh, and that's the curses section. Because hidden within these curses is a prophecy looking forward to Jesus. So this is when God issued curses as punishment for the sin that had occurred. And this is the moment that creation is bent and broken. So I'm going to read through this passage. It's Genesis 3, starting at verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, and this is a typical man, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So he just blames her. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, does this, the serpent deceive me? So I ate. So she blames the snake. Neither of them take responsibility for their part in this. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, and this is the start of the curses, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head, and you shall strike him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So I wanted to start by reading that whole section, um, and we're going to kind of go through it all a little bit. Um, mostly, though, we're going to focus on that curse of the serpent. Before we get too far in there, I just want to kind of cover a couple contextual pieces. So there's a lot of imagery, uh, especially in the Old Testament, but in this passage there's some things that um, would be good just to kind of examine a little bit. Uh, the first thing I want to look at is uh, serpents and snakes. Uh, in, in Scripture. So, there's approximately 50 references in the Bible to serpents or snakes. And for the most part, they all fall into one of three categories. The most common being a reference to Satan or his angels. Sorry, four categories. Um, the first being Satan and his angels. So, we see this here in this passage. Um, and as we go through the curse, you kind of can see more and more this is not just a snake. Um, and then in various places in Scripture, you kind of see these references um, to Satan as a serpent or a snake. Um, and then in Revelation, we see this as well. And in Revelation, he's also described as a dragon. So Revelation 22 says, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this serpent of old is Satan. Um, but in Revelation, he's grown into this dragon. And then he's also referred to as the deceiver. In Revelation 12, 9, it says, 
And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So that's kind of the first category of snake references. The second one is uh, as a metaphor for danger and punishment. Snakes pose a genuine danger in that society. Um, the most common snake in that area was vipers. Um, so they often would strike from hiding places without warning. Isaiah 14, 29 says, Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root a viper will come out, and its fruit will be a flying serpent. And then another example is Amos 5, 19-20. You who are longing for the day of the Lord, what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. The third is also metaphorical. Um, it's craftiness and shrewdness. That's kind of the metaphorical sense that the snake plays um, as well. Genesis 3, 1, uh, which is in our section, uh, it actually describes the serpent as craftier than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. <coughs> and then in Matthew 10, 16, we have Jesus use the snake as a, uh, an illustration for how we should be, which is kind of interesting. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Which I always kind of like that passage, just kind of interesting. And then finally, the fourth one, um, it's uh, as a sign of the restoration of creation, which is also kind of interesting. So Isaiah 11, 8-9 is an example. It says, The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So serpents play a lot of roles in biblical imagery, and in this curse section, primarily this is Satan, the deceiver. Uh, but you can also kind of see the rest of it. Um, metaphorically, there's danger and punishment connected with this serpent. Um, there's... Uh, craftiness and shrewdness connected to this serpent. but And then we'll also see coming through that in this curse of the serpent, there's also signs of the restoration. So it's kind of interesting that in this section with the serpent, you kind of have a bit of all these different aspects of serpents in biblical imagery played into um, this story. So in this passage, the reference is clear. This is Satan the deceiver. It's not just a snake. And as a result of his actions, mankind falls to sin. Now, that doesn't take away our fault as humans. We still show sin and disobedience. But Satan deceived them into believing that God was trying to keep them from being like he was. Uh, that that was the only reason he would not let them eat the fruit. So they, he kind of twisted the truth and presented him his own version to make it more tempting for, for Eve, who he was talking to. So, presented with this deception, they chose to sin and disobey God. And as a result, these curses come into play. Also, I keep saying Eve. I've had people actually get mad at me for saying that before. I actually always point out that Adam was much worse in this story. Because Eve actually had to be deceived by the serpent. Adam, Eve just said, eat this. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so, who's really worse in this story? So... We get to this curses section, and I just want to talk about curses for a second. Uh, there's three kinds of curses in Scripture, 
And these are curses um, all from God. Uh, first, relating to the creation order. Second, are interpersonal curses. And then third are curses relating to God's covenant relationship with Israel. So most other cultures during this time, and cultures today too, if you talked about curses, um, they would believe that it's some sort of magical thing you did to harm people. Um, and, you know, like you might see in a, in a movie or something, someone muttering under their breath some kind of curse or something to make some bad thing happen. But that's not biblically what a curse is. Um, biblically, curses were God changing something in the order of the world. Uh, making it how it, some, some way different than it's supposed to be. So he's taking something and making it um, bent or, or different. Um, C.S. Lewis, um, it, it's a fictional series, but his space trilogy, um, it, it kind of has like a sci-fi version of history, and it has uh, allusions and illustrations connected to Christianity. But he, um, in this, he describes humanity as the bent one. And I think that's kind of a, a good illustration is that something's been bent or, or broken or changed from how it's supposed to be to um, how it's not supposed to be. Something's wrong. There's wrongness about it. So in our passage here, this is the first set of curses in history. And by I just mean recorded history. This is all we have. Um, so this is the first curses we have in Scripture. And they are, of course, creation curses. So this is changing the order of creation. And the very first curse in history is given to the serpent. So I'm going to read that part again. Genesis 3, 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head, and you shall strike him on the heel. So, most of the English translations, including this one, will translate that as cursed above all the livestock, or cursed more than the livestock. But the proper, like, sense of the Hebrew here would be cursed from all the livestock, or cursed apart from the community of animals. You're being separated from the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, cursed from all the livestock. And this is the first curse. I'm not going to get into the rest of that curse now. I'll come back. Um, I'll just skip right to Eve. Uh, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree, about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Uh, thorns and thistles will grow. You'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread. And then... At the end, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and the dust you will return. That's the death part of the end. So, something interesting to note here is that while God is changing things in the creation order for these last two curses, the Adam and Eve part, he does not specifically tell Adam and Eve that they are cursed. To Eve, he says he's changing childbirth so that it will be significantly more painful He's changing her relationship with her husband so that it's no longer an equal partnership. And this is actually something we don't usually recognize as part of the curses. Um, but this is actually not the original creation order here in Genesis. Then to Adam he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. So the ground is cursed because of their actions. Yes, but he doesn't use that same harsh language. That curse will affect them. They will pay for it with the rest of their lives. 
But even though there's changes made to this creation order that directly affect and punish Adam and Eve, we do not see God use that same harsh language with Adam and Eve as he does with the serpent. He does not say that they are cursed directly. And that's just something interesting to point out. So let's finally go back to that snake curse. That's where we're going to kind of camp for the rest of this. Uh, and look at this. Because this is where the first prophecy about the coming of a Messiah lies. So he's cursed from all loving creatures, cursed to be apart from them. Then it says, on your, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So the snake crawling and, and eating the dust as, as they kill their prey, this will be a perpetual reminder to us of the temptation uh, and the fall, a reminder of Satan's deception of mankind. And then we get to this part where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So this is a, a declaration of war. There's this perpetual ongoing struggle between Satan and the future human race, between satanic forces and mankind. It's a declaration of war, and God says he will put enmity there. So that's kind of just another interesting thing that we don't often look at, is that this perpetual war against Satan that we're fighting, this was born out of the curses. And then we get to the prophecy, he shall crush your head, and you shall strike him on the heel. So earlier it says there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman's offspring, but here we have a change in pronoun. So before it was offspring, that's humanity at large. We're all the offspring of Eve. But now we have this he, he shall crush your head. And that is the first prophecy of Jesus. We have the fall of humanity, we have the curses, the bending of creation from its natural order. But in that very same moment, we have the promise. We will be at war with Satan and his demons, but someone is coming and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat Satan for good. Satan will strike his heel. It will not be without cost. But the illustration has a beautiful contrast here. Satan will strike his heel. It's almost this you know, in contrast, a superficial blow compared to the intensity of he will crush your head. It's the first wisp of the gospel, the good news, right in the moment that makes the gospel necessary. No sooner was the wound given than the remedy was revealed. Otherwise, there would have been no hope at all. So this is the first prophecy of Jesus, of a Messiah to come, and to defeat the power of sin once and for all. And it's the promise that the one who deceived us will be destroyed. So we've looked at this passage, um, and looked at this prophecy, and we're going to spend a little more time on the application and takeaway side that I normally do. Um, what do we take away from this prophecy? What is most important for us to remember and to focus on to give us hope? So this passage does four things for us. This prophecy does four things. This is what I really hope that everyone will, will stick with and remember when you think back on this prophecy in the future. The first thing this prophecy does is it creates an expectation of a redeemer who would be a descendant of Adam and Eve. And this is really important because of the incarnation. Uh, it says that he, Jesus, will be the descendant of Eve. Many have argued over the centuries 
about the incarnation um, and whether he was truly both God and man. Some have said that he was fully God and only appeared as a man. And if you've ever heard of the Gnostics, that's what they believed in the first two centuries. They believed that God only appeared to be a man when he came in the form of Jesus, that it was an apparition or something, that he was not physically a man. But this prophecy directly says the Messiah will be the seed of Adam and Eve, which means that he must be a person. He must be one of us. And this is the first glimpse into the future plans of God. From the very beginning, we see that the Messiah will walk among us as a man. The second thing this prophecy does is establish parameters by which God will redeem his people from their sin. Uh, it says here that the heel of the Savior will be stricken by, a, by Satan. And while this doesn't literally mean that Jesus will be bitten on the heel by a snake, uh, it does point to the shedding of blood. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit. I don't want to go into too much detail because we're going to talk about it again in upcoming weeks. Um, but Hebrews 9.22 says, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So, in Judaism, blood was very tightly and closely associated with life. Leviticus 17.11-12 says, and this is God speaking, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. And here's the important part. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And that's the whole basis for animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. Uh, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's an awesome verse, and we always we focus on that last part and celebrate, which we should. But I just want to talk about that first part for a bit that we don't always take as much time on. The wages of sin is death. The price for sinning against God is death. That's why they sacrificed animals to God. They were trying to take this creature's life and substitute it for their own, to pay for their own wrongdoing. The life was in the blood of the animal. So when people sinned, they tried to give God the life of an animal instead of their own life. And again, I don't want to go into too much detail because we are going to talk about that a little bit more uh, as we go on. Um, but the point here, the important part, is that the parameters are already set in this prophecy. Jesus will deal Satan the death blow, but through the shedding of his own blood. His heel will be stricken. He will suffer and pay for that death blow with his own blood. The third thing this prophecy does is establish a cosmic explanation for the disorder of the world. So from that point on, we've been at war with satanic forces. This war is prophesied by God in this passage. He says that he will put enmity between us. Adam and Eve did sin. They chose to rebel against God. But Eve's sin wasn't just her own rebellion. She was deceived. She didn't come up with all this on her own. The serpent spoke to her and deceived her into believing that they could be like God. And that's why Satan is called the deceiver. And he does the same thing to us, does he not? He, he subtly and quietly deceives us into thinking that we can become gods of our own through our own desires and temptations. Look at our world. 
and you'll see how many people are trying to become their own gods. We don't call it that, but whether it be through building a legacy or hoarding money or power or sex or a million other things, people are trying to become their own gods. Satan tries to deceive us every day. In our society, I don't think it would do him any good to reveal himself for who he is because he's crafty and shrewd like a snake. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And Ephesians 6.11 says that we should put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He's a scheming, lying, deceiving manipulator. That's who he is, and he is at war with all of us. Even though we are fortunate enough to live in an era where Jesus has already dealt that death blow, the battle is still raging on until Jesus returns. The war is won, but the battle is still ongoing. And this is the world order that was established in Genesis, the reason for the pain and suffering in the world that we see today. The fourth thing and the final thing that this prophecy does for us is it establishes the principle of the victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness. So I've, I've said this before, we, we always are fortunate and lucky to have the benefit of looking back and having the full picture of what God has done. Um, but before Jesus, they didn't know how God was going to do it. They had prophecies that showed he would do it, but they didn't yet know how it would happen. And what we see here in this first prophecy is that even though they didn't know the how, they knew what was going to happen uh, or what the end goal would be. God announced his intentions to defeat Satan and to redeem the world to himself from the moment that the world became bent and broken. So from the very beginning, the principle or the idea that God would be ultimately victorious over the power of sin has been established from the very beginning. Whew, that's a lot. <laughs> um, I hope this has been encouraging. Um, I, I like the idea of doing this coming up to Easter and seeing all these prophecies of Jesus to get us excited um, for his coming uh, because we, we always have lived in a world where he's already come. And so to try and give us that excitement of a of Messiah to come to redeem us and save us. Um, and I always enjoy going back to the beginning because this is all one big story. Um, and it's great to see how God has tied everything together from the beginning all the way to the end. What sometimes can seem disorderly and confusing to us um, as just specks of sand in the middle um, is all part of God's plan. From the very moment that humanity fell to sin, God has had a plan. He knew exactly what he was going to do to bring us back to him. From the moment that Adam and Eve put the fruit to their lips, God saw Jesus on the cross, suffering and dying to redeem us from ourselves, from sin and from death with his own blood. He would come as one of us, as a man, but as God. Even though a war was declared on that day, God had already planned the final battle. And as we begin to approach this Easter season, uh, and as we study these prophecies looking forward towards Jesus, 
let's remember how deep God's love is for us, that he could have had that plan for us from the very beginning, and how immense the sacrifice that Jesus made in our place. I'll close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus, primarily and above all. I just thank you that we do have the full picture and that we have been able to see the love that you have had for us from the very beginning. I just ask that we could be a living embodiment of that love to the world around us, a world that's broken and hurting and that needs you. I ask that you'd be with us this week as we go out and about our business uh, and just help us to be a living sacrifice in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen.